If you were to ask someone who is an expert in astronomy and astrophysics whether there are other planets out there in the universe beyond our solar system, if you were to ask that question about 30 years ago, you would have gotten a probable answer of we think there are, but we haven't found them yet. Fast forward to the present day, and not only do we know that most stars in the universe have planets around them, and most of the stars that have planets around them likely have entire planetary systems, not just one planet, but we are living in an era where we now have thousands upon thousands of confirmed planets. Almost all of them are due to one specific method, the transit method, and almost all of the planets discovered with that method were discovered by NASA's Kepler mission. How did we go and take this transformative step from not knowing whether planets were common or rare in the universe to knowing about thousands of them firsthand? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Jesse Christensen. Jesse is a research scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute at Caltech, and she is a phenomenal researcher who's done remarkable work with Kepler, with TESS, and with exoplanets in general. Jesse, it's my pleasure to have you here, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. Oh, I'm so excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, and I'm so excited to have you here. So, Fill us in a little bit on some background, right? NASA's Kepler mission was something that I would say was maybe one of the largest revolutionary steps in science of the 2010s. But in the lead up to that mission, in the in the late 2000s, in the late aughts, we, we had started discovering planets mostly through this method known as the stellar wobble method or the radial velocity method. But transits were something that we knew they were going to be powerful, but we didn't really know what to expect. What were scientists like you thinking at the time? Oh, well, at the time, we were just thinking, I hope this works, because it costs a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the idea of a transit had been around for a really long time. There's there's papers back to the 1950s talking about the fact that if you have a planetary system and it's lined up just right, then sometimes the planets which are orbiting around their star will, will go between you and the star and block some of the light. So that's the very basic idea, and that basic principle has been around for more than 50 years. But it's the fact that planets are so tiny compared to the size of their stars, which meant that it was decades and decades before we actually had the technology to do this, to go and actually see these tiny, tiny dips in light as a planet went in front of the star. Now, I love the story of Kepler because the PI, the principal investigator, Bill Baruki, tried for literally decades to get this mission launched. He started proposing it back in the 70s, saying, we have to go to space, we have to get above the atmosphere, which is so noisy and cloudy, and the sun comes up, and it's just not great. Uh, And we go to space, and we'll do it. And NASA kept saying, no, no, you haven't proved that the technology is good enough yet. Go back and try again. And he tried four times over the course of nearly 30 years to get this mission accepted. 
And it was finally selected. He did everything they asked him to. He proved that CCDs were precise enough to make this measurement. He proved that the spacecraft would be stable enough in this orbit to have, have a little enough amount of noise that you could do this. Uh, and they finally launched it. And it's just, it's such an amazing story of perseverance and like the human story. They launched it and it was an incredible success. Everything he had said was true. There were planets everywhere and this spacecraft was an exquisite machine for finding them. It's just such a lovely story. Well, let me ask you this, because this is not a story that I know nearly as much about as you do. If he had successfully lobbied NASA back in the 70s and launched it with the technology that was available at the time, what would the outcome have been? Would they, in fact, have been able to have found planets back, you know, back back before you and I were even born? Would this have been technically possible way back then? Or did it really require these advances in detecting these minuscule flux dips, these dips in brightness that are one part, not even in a hundred, but in a thousand, one part in 10,000? Could we have done that with technology back in the 70s? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it really did require effectively the development of CCDs. So that's a charged couple device. It's a digital camera, basically. The thing that all of you listening have in your phones right now that you're probably listening to this podcast on, that camera was developed because astronomers really, really, really wanted to look at the sky very precisely. Uh, so if it had launched in the 70s, you know, they might have been able to do things like Jupiter-sized planets. So Jupiter blocks 1% of the light from the sun if it goes in front of the sun. And you can do that from the ground with actually fairly modest telescopes. You only need like a four-inch telescope on the ground with a CCD camera on the back, and you can see transits of Jupiter. That's really exciting, of Jupiter-sized planets. Uh, but to get down to Earth, Earth is another, you know, 10 times smaller again, which means in area, which is what's really doing the blocking the area of the planet in front of the area of the star, it's 100 times smaller again. So as you say, it's one part in 10,000. Uh, that's really small. If we if we had launched in the seventies, we would not have found small planets. And that's and that's really remarkable because when we first started finding planets in the early nineties, you know what the stellar wobble method is really good at doing is it's good at detecting the motion of the parent star. You know, most of most of the people who learn astronomy, they think, okay, planets, they orbit around their sun, they orbit around their star in ellipses. And that's true. But what's slightly more true is if you say, well, actually, the planet and the star orbit around their mutual center of mass. And so if you imagine a planet like Jupiter around a star like our sun, there might be a mass difference of about a thousand between them, which means that Jupiter, sure, it's going to make that big ellipse around the sun, but the sun is going to make a much smaller ellipse, about a thousand times smaller around Jupiter as well, that it's going to move around that mutual center of mass, what we call the barycenter. And that type of measurement, that stellar wobble where you measure how does a star move over time, how does it shift, in particular along your line of sight, um, you're going to measure the ones that shift by the greatest amount and the ones that shift in the shortest amount of time first. That's going to be the easiest signal to get. So the early exoplanets, they were all these what we call hot Jupiters. They were these very massive planets orbiting way inside where Mercury is with respect to the sun. So when you talk about 
going to Kepler, going to the transit method and going to space with these CCDs. Now we're talking about not just getting these Jupiter sized objects farther and farther out from the sun, not just going lower in mass, trying to go from maybe Jupiter mass to Saturn mass to Neptune mass. We're talking about probing a whole new regime of the sky, not only around, you know, whatever these stars are, but around whatever stars happen to be out there, as long as the amount of light you're blocking is large enough compared to the overall brightness of the star, which means the overall size and diameter of the star as well, um, you're going to be able to see it with the transit method. So you're finding planets that we would never have been able to see using this old school stellar wobble method. Yeah, and uh, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. So the radio velocity method uh, the wobble method that you're saying, in order for it to measure a planet like the Earth, uh, the Earth only tugs on the sun a very, very small amount, and it moves the sun by about eight centimeters a second, which is like a slow turtle walking on the ground is like eight centimeters a second. That's the effect that the Earth has on the sun. And at the moment, that's beyond our technology to be able to do that, to measure the velocity of a star so precisely eight centimeters a second. Uh, but that's a goal of ours. NASA is developing this technology in the future to be able to go and do this. And it's, I was just listening to this telecon just earlier today about, you know, this concept for a space-based radial velocity machine. You get above the atmosphere. You have a laser do the calibration of the wavelengths. It's really incredible the sorts of ideas that people are coming up with to try and get down to these tiny planets because we all care about Earth, right? Like, you know, Jupiter's cool, Saturn's really cool. But when we're out there hunting for planets, we're hunting for Earths. We want to find another Earth. And we, we haven't found one yet. You know, and that's that's amazing, too. Just when you talk about the progression of the technology, when we were detecting the first exoplanets, we were able to detect, you know, motions of the star along the line of sight down to precisions of, you know, tens of meters per second, which is which is phenomenal, right? You right. move it tens of meters like per second. Bolt, and right. Like he, he runs about 10 meters a second. Right, right. So, you know, you can detect a Usain Bolt, and now you're talking about going from tens of meters a second to less than 10 centimeters a second. And this is, this is an enormous advance. This is, this is more than two orders of magnitude better that we're talking about. And that's just with the radial velocity method. When you start coming now and talking about the transit method, um, the technology improvement that we've seen to me, the biggest advance, you say it comes from CCDs, but for those of us who don't understand what charge-coupled devices are, what you're basically talking about is you are being sensitive to, I'm just going to say, pretty much every photon that arrives from a distant star. We used to have to, you know, we'd take photographic plates or we'd, we'd use different types of cameras and we'd say, well, we can collect this percent of the photons that arrive. We could collect maybe 1% or then we got better, maybe 5%, maybe 20%. When you're talking about CCDs, you're really talking about getting almost all of the photons that arrive on your camera, aren't you? Yeah, so the throughput, one of the things you're describing is called the throughput, which is the efficiency with which light hits the front of your telescope and gets all the way through to your instrument. So there's all these optics it has to pass through, all these filters, all these reflectors, and it's got to get all the way into your camera. 
And that's one of the things, especially with radial velocity, which has to do, you know, it has to disperse the light with a spectrum so that you could measure different wavelengths. Uh, the throughput is often very low, uh, you know, in the few percent. So as you're saying, most of the light isn't making it all the way through. Uh, the good thing with transits is because because it's a white light measurement, which basically means we're taking it at whatever wavelength comes through. Because it's a planet blocking a star, the planet's just blocking all the light at every wavelength. It's a solid body going in front of a star. So it's not blocking more short wavelength light than long wavelength light. It's just blocking all the light. So we can just take all the photons. We can just say, give them all. We just want to see how much they're changing by. What's the rate they're changing by? Uh, and that's how we see these little dips. Um, so you're right. We do, we do have this ability to integrate over all these wavelengths and get these you know, beautiful, beautiful light curves. Now, I remember when Kepler first launched, it had this unique methodology that, that was novel to me. What it was going to do was it was going to point at one patch of sky just continuously, one narrow angle patch of sky, um, I believe along one of the spiral arms of our galaxy. So you should be able, they were estimating, to see about a hundred, maybe 150,000 stars all at once in the field of view. And you were going to be able to measure, you know, okay, some percentage of these stars are going to have planets around them. And some percentage of these stars with planets are going to be fortuitously aligned with our line of sight, that their planets actually will pass in front of the disk of their star from our perspective. I remember doing this calculation back when Kepler first launched in, I think it was 09, and being appalled to realize that, wow, even if you were to take like a solar system analog and say the Kepler field of view is made up of 100,000 stars just like our own, um, we would be in a lot of trouble if that were the case because only... I believe it was somewhere around 1% of the stars would have a good enough alignment that Mercury would even pass in front of the star from our perspective. And Mercury is too small compared to the size of the sun for Kepler to even be sensitive to it. So I was starting to get worried that, wow, if planets are rare... Um, and this alignment is only as fortuitous as we would expect random alignments to be, we might not see very many planets at all. We might not see planets around very many of these stars at all. But almost immediately, uh, that fear was proven completely unfounded, wasn't it? Yeah. So interestingly, you know, part of the goal of Kepler was to measure how frequent planets like the Earth are. And kind of captured with that, but unstated, is the statement, how frequent are solar systems like our solar system? So there's an Earth there, and there's rocky planets here, and there's gas giants out here. Uh, and before we knew about exoplanets, so before 30 years ago, all of our models for how planets form and how they evolve and how they migrate were designed to recreate our solar system because that was the one we knew. Uh, and so the exciting thing about Kepler and the radial velocity method and the other methods that have come online successfully since then is they've shown us that actually most of the planetary systems in the sky don't look anything like our solar system. They have all of these planets that are so close to their star, well within the orbit of Mercury, as you say. Some, you know, some systems have five, six, seven planets within the distance out to Mercury, which is just wild when you think about it. Our solar system is so empty in comparison. Uh, but that was the exciting thing. Kepler's a statistics mission, and we got to go out and say, like, well, uh, what do we think? And we got to discover this whole new exciting world. Now, the, the point you made about the um, 
patch of sky we looked at is really interesting. So it's actually not in the spiral arm. It's a little bit out of the Milky Way galaxy because we had to kind of trade off between having too many stars in the field of view such that they would blur together and having not enough stars because, as you say, most of them don't transit. Uh, if you look at Earth-sized planets in Earth-like orbits, it drops down to half a percent. So fewer than 1% of systems are lined up, up, lined up right. And that's why we have to look at hundreds of thousands of stars. But that's why the radial velocity method I keep coming back to this, even though I'm a transit expert. That's why the radial velocity method is actually a really exciting future step because you don't have to be lined up just right. With transit, you have to be lined up just right. With radial velocity, there's a projection towards you of the mass difference between the planet and the star, almost regardless of where the planet is in its orbit. Like it's get, It gets stronger the closer the planet is towards the line of sight, but it doesn't have to be exactly so the nearest planets to us, so if you go outside tonight and look at the stars around you, some of those stars are really close. The nearest planets to us probably won't transit. They're just statistically, they probably won't transit. So all of these stars that have planets, we won't see them transiting. But we might see them with radial velocity. Or we might see them with direct imaging, which is another way we've been able to use to discover planets. Uh, so transits are exciting for statistics. They're exciting for probing exoplanet atmospheres. They're exciting for probing architectures of systems. But for like finding our nearest neighbors, actually radio velocity and direct imaging are more exciting to me. And those are those are coming up on the horizon too, and we can talk a little bit about that um, because because this is this is fascinating stuff. These techniques you're talking about, they're all complementary to each other. When you are lucky enough to get a transiting system. It's going to give you a few very good pieces of information. We, as astronomers, understand how stars work well enough that we understand, okay, the star of this mass and this luminosity has this physical size and this radius and this flux. When you get a transit, when you get a planet passing in front of that star, you start to be able to do interesting things almost immediately. Based on the amount that the light dips, you can infer what's the radius of this planet, but you can't know the mass. For that, you need something like the stellar wobble, the radial velocity method, because that will measure the gravitational tug on the star, which will let you get the mass of the planet. You'll know the period of the planet, how long it takes to orbit from the transit method, because it doesn't take just one transit for you to go, aha, we have a planet. You need to see that signal repeated, which is part of the reason why the transit method is not very good for finding these long period planets yet, because the primary Kepler mission only lasted, I think it was about three years. If you don't get multiple transits, or I would say even more than two is what you need to be sure that you're getting something, um... You know, you just hasn't been around for long enough. You you can say, well, why haven't we found any Mars-sized transiting object or Mars orbit transiting objects? And it's because you, you haven't had enough time. If the Kepler mission had been going on for 10 years or 20 years, you would be able to find planets much farther out from their parent star than we've been able to. But again, we've been biased towards the planets that are easiest to find, which again are the ones that block the most light and the ones that build up the most transits. But this also has a bonus effect that you've been able to find lower mass planets that are closer in towards their star because they build up more and more orbits than any other planet around their star. Yeah, so we've been looking for Earth-like planets around stars like our sun, just because, you know, we have a sample size of one of planets where life evolved, and that's rocky planets around stars like the sun. 
but it's very difficult to find rocky planets around stars like the sun, as I was just saying. But as you pointed out, if you took Earth and put it around an M dwarf, so that's a much smaller, much cooler red star, uh, it would be much more detectable just because the relative sizes of the two bodies are are much better for, for transits. So you're blocking much more of the light with an Earth-sized planet when the star is small, just as less light. Uh, so we have found a bunch of rocky planets around M dwarfs. Uh, one of the most famous systems we have is Trappist-1. There's seven rocky planets around a star that's almost too small to be a star. It's like right on the border of, of becoming a star. It's, it's almost a brown dwarf, but it just made it, just started burning. Um, so that's Trappist-1, and it's got seven rocky planets around it, which is, and again, it's just all super close in. The longest period of the seven is something like 40 days, so they're all very crammed in. So that leads to some interesting speculation, though, right? Like, it's a rocky planet, and it's the right temperature. Some of these are the right temperature for liquid water, but now you're around a completely different kind of star. So M-dwarfs uh, have a totally different radiation profile than our sun, and it's not just because they're a different color. They just put out their light at different energies. And in particular, they put out a very large fraction of their light as high energy. So, for instance, UV, ultraviolet, uh, which is dangerous for us, right? Like, DNA on Earth does not like ultraviolet light. Um, I'm from Australia, which is like the melanoma capital of the world. So I can tell you that we don't like ultraviolet light. Um, and so this is a worry for these planets, these rocky planets that are the right temperature for liquid water around M dwarfs. Are they just getting blasted by UV radiation? Are they just getting sterilized? Uh, what does that mean for life? Can life evolve in such a harsh radiation environment? Uh, it's re we don't know the answer to this. This is like an active area of research right now. Because, you know, if you look at our sun when it was young, when the Earth was forming, our sun put out a lot of UV when it was young too. It was very active. It was doing a lot of stuff uh, and put out a lot of UV. So, And that's when life was evolving. So we kind of have this tension right now in the field of, you know, we found these rocky planets. We'd love to believe they're habitable because they're the only rocky planets we found that are the right temperature. But we're just, ugh, we're not sure. We're not convinced yet, I think. No, and there's there's a few, I think, interesting questions that come up with this. One of them is is very closely related to what exactly you were talking about, which is, you know, if you say, oh, well, we want a sun-like star with an Earth-like planet around it, you know, that that's something you can go and look for, but that's not the majority of what's out there. Four out of five stars in the universe are M-dwarf stars. They are far and away the most common type of star in the universe, even though you might have heard like, oh, the sun is a typical star star, it turns out that 95% of the stars in our galaxy are less massive and cooler in color temperature than our sun is. So when you start saying, okay, well, this is this is what's going on here. This is what this is what's out there. You start wondering, well, what about these really common types of star? What about these M dwarf stars that are out there? And they, it turns out, even have variations among them. For example, what you were talking about with a star like Trappist One, or closer by Proxima Centauri, which is only a little bit more massive than the Trappist One system. These are stars that they do a lot of flaring. They are very active, they have bursts of x-rays that they emit, they have, like you say, lots and lots of UV radiation, would that sterilize a planet? On the other hand, the TESS mission, which is in many ways the successor to Kepler and maybe the best planet-finding mission for the closest planets 
that transit to us. So this is going to be great for candidate selection for James Webb Space Telescope and future space-based observatories that might potentially do direct imaging or even transit spectroscopy. Um, the more massive ones, like Tess had just found a third planet around TOI 700, and that planet um, seems to be pretty Earth-like, and yet TOI 700 doesn't seem to be flaring. It doesn't seem to have these X-ray outbursts. It seems eminently possible that all of those conditions that we say are not conducive to life on a planet around an M-dwarf, um, that might only apply to the low-mass M-dwarfs. And maybe the high-mass M-dwarfs are as stable as a K-star or even a sun-like G-star. Yeah, so this was exciting. TOI 700 was really exciting because it was the first rocky planet in the habitable zone of a star that was found by the TESS mission. And so TESS is a much smaller set of telescopes than Kepler. Kepler was a big one-meter telescope, which doesn't sound huge, but it costs a lot to put it in space. Uh, TESS is just little 10-centimeter telescopes, four of them. Um, and so it was never designed to find, you know, small Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. Uh, so, you know, people are always like, will TESS help us with the Kepler results? And I'm always like, ah, not really, because it's not sensitive enough. But it is sensitive to these rocky planets around M-dwarfs. And so I think TOI 700 is just one of many that will be found by the TESS mission and followed up by James Webb, as you say. These will be really exciting prospects because we know, as you say, TOI 700 isn't a very active star. So we can start wondering, like, can we measure the atmospheres of these planets? There's three planets we've found so far. Can we see whether they're hydrogen-rich or water-rich or carbon monoxide-rich? Um, so these are really, really exciting targets. Uh, and again, they're just so uncharted in the sense that we don't really have a good feel for what planets around M dwarfs look like. So it's so exciting to have all these opportunities to find out more with James Webb. No, and these are these are also fascinating to me because you are you're focusing right now on these Earth-like planets, on the rocky planets. And one of the most interesting things that got uh, differently interesting for me a few years ago was when Kepler first started finding planets. Yes, it was finding uh, lots of, you know, Jupiter and Neptune-like planets. And yes, it was finding like these Earth-sized planets too. But it seemed like the majority of planets that it's finding, and I think now that the mission is concluded, the majority of planets that it found are in sort of this in-between region that we don't really have in our solar system, what people are calling super-Earths, planets that are larger than Earth, and in most cases it appears likely have a hydrogen and helium envelope around them like Neptune or Uranus does, but that are smaller than Neptune or Uranus. We called them super-Earths for a long time, and I've been trying to switch to calling them mini-Neptunes because of, of what we've started to learn about planets and densities and the different categories they fall into. But to me, finding all of these super-Earths or mini-Neptunes out there, it was a big surprise. And then it got even more interesting when people started categorizing, well, for planets where we have mass and radius as a function and how they go together, it turns out that once you get above about two Earth masses or about 20% larger in radius than Earth, you really start becoming more of a Neptune-like world than an Earth-like world. And both of these were both fascinating and educational to me, but also wondrous that 
This was something we did not know anything about just a few years ago, and now we not only know, hey, surprise, most of the planets out there don't look like anything in our solar system, and also, most of the planets out there that we've classified as super-Earths aren't really Earth-like at all. Yeah, no, this has been so much fun. Uh, so as you say, in our solar system, we have a gap. We have all these little rocky planets up to the size of Earth, and then there's a big jump in size, and the next two biggest planets are Neptune and Uranus, which are about four times the size of Earth. So there's this big gap. And it turns out this gap, if you look around us in the galaxy, is entirely populated by planets that we're still learning so much about. Uh, one thing I wanted to say, I don't know if you've had Mike Brown or Constantine Batigan on the podcast, but they suspect that Planet Nine, which is this mysterious planet in our solar system out past the orbit of Neptune, which is aligning a bunch of trans-Neptunian object orbits, they think the Planet Nine is a super-Earth. So maybe our solar system does have one of the most common types of planets in the in the galaxy, which is a super-Earth, which would be very cool. Uh, I'm trying to make Neptini happen. Uh, so instead of oh, mini Neptune or sub Neptune, I really like Neptune. I like that. That's, that's I like vote. that. It makes me want to drink too, but that's, exactly. that's very good. That's very good. Neptini. I'll remember that one. Actually, Mike Brown was our guest, I think, uh, just about three months ago on the podcast. And we, we talked extensively about Planet Nine, which is, you know, which is its own remarkable idea, but also has been met with a lot of skepticism by, by more than just me, but, um, but also by me. Right. I, because I'm employed by Caltech, I'm contractually obliged to bring up Planet Nine at every opportunity. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I like that. Um, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is the difference between NASA's Kepler mission and NASA's test mission. Uh, Kepler originally, like you said, and thank you for correcting me that it wasn't directly at one of the spiral arms, but slightly out of the plane of the Milky Way to get just the right number of stars that, you know, we would get enough population statistics, but also that we wouldn't be overwhelmed like we would if we were looking at something like, I don't know, the Sagittarius star cloud where, where all the stars just run together in the, in the plane of the Milky Way towards the galactic center. Instead, um, what Kepler did was it focused on one region of sky and it observed those stars for a very long period of time. After Kepler had a, I'll just say a bit of a malfunction, it sort of began uh, a new phase of its mission called the K2 mission, where it would just focus on one particular region of the sky for about a month at a time. And it would say, okay, we're going to measure the stars around the planets around these stars, but we're only going to get the ones that go around the fastest. We're only going to get the one that makes, that makes the most number of transits in a short amount of time, which is particularly interesting for these M dwarf stars, because like you said, they're scaled down versions of our solar system where the stars are smaller, the planets orbit more closely in the habitable zone or the temperate region where we expect liquid water to exist. If you had an Earth-like atmosphere is further in and K2, that phase of the Kepler mission found a whole lot of interesting 
maybe even potentially habitable if we're lucky planets. Uh, but what Tess is doing is brilliant in the sense that it's taking that success of K2 and it's going across the sky, the North Pole and the South Pole, uh, in these little chunks. And what it's doing with each of these chunks is it's getting like a strip where it goes from the pole down to the equator in these four individual regions so that at the equatorial regions, you're getting about one month of data for each each patch of sky as you go across. But at the polar regions, which is where this remarkable star TOI 700 is located in the south polar region, you're actually getting close to continuous coverage. And that means you can start building up these longer period planets, these more massive stars that might have planets around them, and you could potentially start to find, you know, a really remarkable candidate for something like James Webb or Louvoir or Havex or one of these future observatories to look at, which is, could we find a planet that was well enough separated from its star that we could directly image it? Yeah, I'm really excited by the possibility of doing statistics with tests. And I've been like one of the champions of like, we should try and do statistics because it's not designed like Kepler. So as you say, Kepler was a very controlled statistical experiment. We will look at this field, these nearly 200,000 stars for four years, and we will just take the same measurement over and over and over and over and over again. And we will be able to quantify how complete we are, which is like, how many planets did we find? How reliable we are? How many planets did we call planets that aren't really planets? Uh, and we'll be able to do this very controlled experiment. So then K2, as you said, kind of turned into the Wild West. The spacecraft was broken. We just did what we could. So we've just observed all these fields in the ecliptic. And then Tess is doing this, like, as you say, these like orange wedges on the sky one by one to tile the whole sky. The reason I'm excited by doing statistics with Tess, even though it's going to be a real bugbear, is because of all of the different types of stars that Tess looked at. So Kepler mainly looked at stars like the sun, because the whole point was to say how common are planets like the Earth around stars like the sun. There were a few thousand M dwarfs, but not many. Uh, K2 increased that to about 30,000, and uh, a bunch of us are working right now on doing some more statistics with that. But TESS, because it's doing the whole sky, it's doing young stars, old stars, active stars, quiet stars, metal-rich stars, metal-poor stars, stars in clusters, stars in moving groups. Uh, it's really exciting to have all of these different probes of planet formation. So, for instance, we have different theories about how planets form, uh, whether they are like little grains of dust that just kind of agglomerate together and grow bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually get big enough that they start grabbing all the gas and then they get bigger. Um, or whether it's just a, a part of gas, a, a part of a gas cloud that collapses like a star, but there's just not enough to start burning. Um, so there's these different ways that we think planets form. And those different ways have different time scales associated with them. Some of them happen very slowly. They take a hundred million years. And some of them happen very quickly. They're, it's all over within a million years. So if we can look at stars of all of these different ages, stars at 1 million years old, stars at 10 million years old, stars at 100 million years old, and work out which ones have planets, like where do the planets turn on? If all of the stars at 1 million year old already have all the planets we expect to see, then we know it must be one of these really rapid planet formation scenarios. But if we look at the 1 million year old and the 10 million year old stars and they don't have any planets yet, then we know it must be one of the longer ones. So it's really cool to have this ability to like start probing these statistics in all these different directions we didn't have with Kepler. So I'm really jazzed. I bet. I bet. And that's also really fascinating to me because 
um, once you start building up large enough statistics like that, you don't have to worry about being biased. The, these types of biases that you get with small surveys where you say, oh, okay, well, we've seen a few stars that have planets form within, I don't know, 10 million years and then we're done. But are we only seeing the ones that do this and not the ones that don't? And are we biased because we have a small number of statistics? Um, we, we were biased. We, we are always going to be biased in a lot of ways by what we can detect. But like you say, if you're getting stars that are are more enriched with heavy elements than our sun and are much less enriched in heavy elements than our sun and everything in between, you don't have to worry as much about, oh, am I just getting lucky or unlucky that the few I'm seeing happen to be the few where the transit uh, alignment is perfect and then there are others and I'm not seeing those. If you have just a handful, you worry about that. If you have hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of them, you you worry a lot less about that. And when you talk about doing this type of survey with TESS, I mean, TESS I know is designed to see the closest stars to Earth and to survey those. But as you say, um, this is a this is an observatory that's capable of doing much much more than what it's designed for and because you're just recording all of this data it's really just you know what have we learned from it and how can we leverage it and it sounds like that's going to be maybe the most powerful planetary survey of nearby stars in the universe to us that we've ever performed Absolutely. And, you know, I will say the whole exoplanet community is just having a collective lie down right now because the test proposals were due last week. And uh, we're all putting in all of these proposals to do this, to do this amazing science, to say, look at these stars, look at these stars, look at those stars. Uh, so we're all really excited. Um, so TESS is just about to start its third year of observations. So it's it's finishing its second year at the moment. And in halfway through 2020, it will start its third year. And the exciting thing from the community point of view is that in the third year, almost all of the targets that are available to the community are able to be selected by the community and become public almost immediately. Like they hit the ground, they get processed, they're in the archive within a couple of weeks. So it's just going to become this huge data machine for the community. Uh, and we're already having trouble keeping up with the, with the flow of potential planet candidates. Um, so there's this whole ground-based effort to try and turn those planet candidates into planets as fast as possible. Uh, but it's just a really delightful mission to be part of because it's, it's aiming to be so open to the community. And just there's no proprietary period. The data will just come out when they come out. It's really cool. That's amazing to me. What I, what I also love about this is as far as, you know, space-based missions go, uh, the science that Tess is doing, the, the data that Tess is collecting and the quality of the observations is, it's absolutely fantastic. But what a lot of people, I think, are excited about is how fantastic it is for being such a low budget mission. This is this is one of those cases where I think the amount of bang for our scientific buck that we're getting is just it's so out of whack that I I feel like we would have <laughs> all lost our collective minds to not launch this mission. 
Right. And that's the good thing about technology getting to the point that it's gotten to. So these lenses are effective. So there's these four telescopes, they're 10 centimeters. They're basically off the shelf lenses, like four uh, 10 centimeter lenses. Uh, and the CCDs are basically just like mass production CCDs at this point. So you can start to scale up and do these missions uh, for relatively cheaper. So there's an ESA mission, uh, the European Space Agency mission called Plato, which is going to launch in the back half of this decade, which is like 26 of these cameras. Um, and it's just this huge fisheye, which is going to do huge sections of the sky. Uh, and it's going to tile the whole sky, similar to TESS, but a little bit deeper because uh, it'll have so many cameras and they'll be overlapping. Uh, and there's another mission that's coming up that NASA just selected last year called SphereX. And don't ask me to tell you what the acronym is because it's ridiculous. Um, but it's basically going to take spectra of every point of light in the sky, which is wild. Uh, we would never have been able to conceive of this a few years ago, but it's just because the technology and instruments have gotten so scalable and so cheap that now Spherex is only a few hundred million dollars and you can get a spectrum of everything in the sky. No, and that's and that's amazing for, you know, if you look at, you know, the cost of the NASA Kepler mission, which was launched in 09 versus what we're designing and building now and going to launch, you know, 15 or 20 years later, it's just you, you can't even compare like this is this is not only I feel like an advance in technology, it's an advance in how to leverage this technology to get the most scientific bang for your buck out of it. One of the things I wanted to return to, because you mentioned it, and then you just glossed over it and didn't come back to it, is the difference between a planetary candidate and a planet. I was a little bit floored when I learned how many of the original Kepler planetary candidates turned out not to be planets at all. It was like, it was around half of them, that almost half of the planetary candidates that showed up turned out not to be planets. Um, and in fact, I think the, I'll say the plurality of the ones that were rejected turned out to be um, eclipsing binary stars. And that was extraordinarily surprising to me I don't think it should have been, though. I think if I was better informed, I wouldn't have been surprised by it. Was it a surprise to you, and why or why not? <laughs> so having been involved in a lot of ground-based surveys before I was involved in Kepler, I will say no, it wasn't a surprise, because before Kepler, almost everything you found from the ground wasn't didn't turn out to be a planet. It was always something else. It was always an eclipsing binary or a false positive in some other way. The problem, so I've described transits as this very simple measurement that you take. You just measure the brightness over and over again, and you see a dip. The problem is a dip in light can have so many different causes. The star could have done something. There could be two stars. One of them's blocking the light. The instrument could have done something. The sky could have done something if it's a ground-based instrument. There's all of these other things that cause dips in brightness. So, in fact, before Kepler, the rate of false positives was much higher. Like from the ground, it's like 90%. Uh, and that's frankly what I spent my whole PhD doing is chasing down planet candidates that didn't turn out to be planets. So the fact that Kepler has such exquisite photometry, because this is one meter telescope in space, actually cut down the amount of false positives a lot. Um, it was it was about half and half. There's this number at the end. We find about 8,000 things that look like eclipses or transits, and about half of them turn out to be planet candidates and half of them turn out to not be planet candidates. So a 50% false positive rate is great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, but yes, if, if you're not used to it, you're probably like, oh my gosh, half of them aren't real. Yeah. And I think that's just, uh, that's just understanding, you know, what you're looking at a little bit better. I imagine that as time goes on, uh, you're going to be able to sort of look at 
something right away and recognize, oh, that's what an eclipsing binary looks like, not a planet, and now it won't fool me again. Um, Absolutely. And I imagine... Is that true? Yeah, yeah. so we train people the way we train machines as well. So, like, as a grad student, I would see every dip of light and be like, it's a planet, and I would, like, run to my supervisor and be like, look, look, and he would look at it and he'd be like, well, it's a little V-shaped instead of U-shaped, and this might be a secondary eclipse. It's probably an eclipsing binary, and I'd be like, okay. And then I'd go back to my computer and look at, like, 2,000 more light curves and find another dip, and I'd run back and I'd be like, look, it's a planet. And he'd be like, well, see this rise in brightness before the dip, so it's probably not. It's an eclipsing binary with ellipsoidal variations and you'd be like okay so you learn though you basically get more cynical like i don't trust anything i see until it's like looks really good um but that's the same level of training nowadays all of this vetting what i'm describing is vetting where you're looking at a signal and deciding whether or not it's a good signal all of this vetting is done by algorithms now because we're trying to do statistics so you don't want statistics to rely on whether or not your grad student's in a good mood that day uh, which sometimes I was and sometimes I wasn't. Uh, you need statistics to be repeatable and quantifiable. So what we had to do was to come up with all of these different algorithms to basically, you know, quantify the decisions. Like when you look at a U shape, how do you decide that it's a U shape and not a V shape? Like what what aspect of the shape are you using to do that? So we had to come up with okay, so it's the like the width at this height divided by the width at this height tells you whether or not it's U shaped or V shaped. So we had to do this. We had to basically come up with heuristics to capture all of the decisions that we as humans were making in a split second as we looked at this light curve. But it took like a year to work out how to tell a computer to do the same thing. Yeah, I bet because, you know, you there's there comes a point where you're saying, okay, the computer is going to do better than we can, but we have to understand what we're looking at well enough in order to tell the computer, look for this, look for this signal. This is, this is what it means. Um, you know, I know that artificial intelligence has, you know, skyrocketed since we were back in grad school, you know, 15 plus years ago. Uh, but this is also like, this is something where, like you said with yourself and I like you giving me flashbacks to my own grad school <laughs> days too of like of not only my own research but but the research of other people where they would do an experiment and they would say like oh look look at this spike is this this elusive particle that we're looking for and no it's just it's just radio interference but that's what radio interference looks like and you don't know that until you do it is this a U shape or is this a V shape well it's going to be noisy so it's not actually going to be a U or a V until you bin things properly and you look at the full width half max and you look at there are all sorts of different things you have to look at and i don't even know how many of those specifically apply to uh what you get with the raw data but but it's the same sort of thing where you need the experience but once you have the experience it it becomes second nature or it becomes something at any rate that you don't worry about as much um now that we're in that territory now that we are building up these large population statistics um I think a lot of the things that we found have been, you know, revolutionary, and now we take the revolutionary things for granted because we're looking back on them, but I'm I'm still in awe at a whole bunch of them. I still wonder, you know, when we're looking at these, at the planets we're seeing, how much fainter and lower in mass does our planet population go? We have very few planets that are, for example, around the mass of Mercury, and Part of me finds it hard to believe that we won't start uncovering more Mercury-like planets or sub-Mercurian planets as we start, you know, building up 
better telescopes, wider apertures that are capable of probing not just one part in 10,000, but one part in 100,000, one part in a million flux dips. Part of me is really curious about um, the potential of doing transit spectroscopy, where when a planet passes in front of a star, we're not only going to be able to measure that flux dip, but we're going to be able to capture the light that filters through that planet's atmosphere if it has one and start characterizing it. Is it is it made of hydrogen and helium? Does it have oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane, these chemically interesting, maybe even biologically interesting compounds in it? Uh, I feel like all of this is on the horizon, but but also these were questions that we did not really know if we could be asking them, we're already doing transit spectroscopy, just not for Earth-sized planets yet. That's right. So, uh, and even for Earth-sized planets, so James Webb, which is the next big NASA mission that will launch in a few years, it's going to be able to study planetary atmospheres in an unprecedented level of detail, but it's still not going to be able to do Earth-like planets in the habitable zones of stars like the Sun because they've just, Earth is so little <laughs> and our atmosphere is so thin. Uh, relatively speaking, um, I'm really excited about what James Webb will find. So, you know, for instance, these super Earths or Neptunes that we were talking about before, we're trying to learn things about the structure of their atmospheres. Like we're trying to model them and guess in advance what they might look like. But only something like James Webb will let us actually look and see. Here's the structure. Here's the temperature. Here are the things that are absorbing the light. Here are the things that are reflecting the light. Are there clouds? Are there water? Um are there diamond planets? There was this, you know, discovery a while back that the carbon to oxygen ratio in this planetary atmosphere was much higher than in the in in our sun, and so they got called diamond planets. And then later on, that discovery went away. All of this early atmospheric analysis has been very, you know, it's it's a new field, so we're all overinterpreting the like two points that we have, like, oh, it's a diamond planet. Um, so I'm so excited to see how this field evolves with James Webb when we have so much more data and so much ability to actually constrain models and say stuff and like explain what super Earths are and why don't we have one. Right. So is it fair to say that exoatmosphere science right now is tenuous? <laughs> no, that was terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, is it better? Is it better to maybe ask? You know, well, we might not with James Webb be able to get Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars. That we could get super Earths around sun-like stars. But would we be able to get Earth-sized planets' atmospheres around these M-dwarf stars, around these ultra-common stars? I know that many people don't anticipate that. At least the ones in the habitable zone or interior to that won't have atmospheres anymore. But, you know, until we make the measurements, I think we don't know and we have to make the measurements, plus the ones that are farther out, like the at least last two planets in the Trappist system, for example. Uh, I think we expect those to have atmospheres, don't we? And will James Webb be able to image them? Yeah, so Trappist itself is pretty faint. Uh, there are some bright M dwarfs that have rocky planets around them that James Webb is going to do like straight up. Um, uh, in in a the similar theme to what I was talking about before, one of the things that James Webb, the mission is doing, is making a whole bunch of data immediately available to the community so that we can start doing our analysis and that'll help us prepare better proposals for the subsequent years. So it's called the Early Release Science Program. 
Uh, and in the early release science program, the whole community came together and said, here are the best exoplanets that James Webb should look at. And there were definitely some rocky planets around bright M dwarfs. Uh, and yes, we're super excited about seeing some of those. Again, like, do they have atmospheres? What do they look like? Does water get delivered to the interior of these solar systems around M dwarfs the same way it does around our sun? These are all questions we want to find the answers to. Yeah, it seems like there are these enormous existential questions about what what are other solar systems truly like? What are, is the is the chemistry like on their worlds? What what sort of atmospheres do they have, or what sort of ranges of atmospheres do they have? And you know, these are questions that a decade ago it was it was speculative to even believe that these planets would exist in the abundances and populations that they do. And now we're talking about going to that next level and saying, what are their atmospheres like? And can we directly image them? And one of the things I know you're interested in is looking ahead even further and saying, okay, well, beyond the next few years, we're going to have these really, really fantastic observatories coming online. We're going to have 30-meter class telescopes here on the ground on Earth. We're proposing missions like HABEX and LUVOIR that could be revolutionary optical observatories for the study of exoplanets. When those start to come online, what are you most excited about that we're going to be able to do? What questions are you excited that we're going to be able to answer with these new technologies at our disposal? Sure. So one of the things I talked about earlier was direct imaging, which is one of the ways we can detect planets. But it's very difficult. So basically, we're just trying to take a picture of the planet. Uh, but the planet is very faint, and it's next to a star, which is very bright. Uh, so we have these, uh, this, these instruments that we build that are designed specifically to block out the light from the star in very sophisticated ways that lets the planet light come through. Now, the reason that's exciting compared to, say, transit or radial velocity is because those are actual photons coming from that planet into your telescope. So transit spectroscopy, which you just talked about a little bit, which is where the planet goes in front of the star and the starlight streams through the upper atmosphere of the planet and molecules in the atmosphere of the planet block light at different wavelengths. Uh, that's all being, that's all starlight that's being filtered through the planet's atmosphere. So there's all of these stellar effects you have to try and disentangle. Like if there are star spots happening at the same time, what does that mean for your interpretation of is there water in the atmosphere? Because temperatures are changing and things are changing. Direct imaging, on the other hand, you will just literally be looking at the photons from that planet. Uh, and that is really, really exciting because it just removes so much confusion and entanglement with the stellar activity and the stellar properties. So these missions that we're talking about, these huge ground-based missions and Luvar and Havix are designed to take actual images, like not really very well resolved. Like I'm, we're not talking about continents and, and Hawaii and stuff, but you know, you will actually see a point of light, which is the planet. And you'll be able to put a spectrograph or like a fiber on that and say, give me all that light and then spread it out and see what's there. And that is, I mean, that's like the holy grail right there. Being able to look at an Earth-like planet and look at its spectrum and just see what's there. Because there's so much interesting stuff in our spectrum. There's the vegetation red edge. There's all of the water features. There's, you know, the CFCs. That, you know, there are, there are like techno signatures you could look for uh, if you just could get the light from the planet. Uh, and we can't do that until we can disentangle the light from the planet from the light from the star. And so this is like 20 and 30 years away, but it's so exciting. 
I mean, I think I think it doesn't really get more exciting than that until you start like making contact with intelligent beings that are living on those worlds. Like that's that's really such next level stuff. I was I was excited when people were bringing up the possibilities of doing direct imaging because of just the photometric stuff you can get from one pixel to learn like, ooh, are there are there ice caps? Do they change seasonally? Does do the colors change like earth greens and browns with the seasons? Does it does it have cloud cover that changes over time. And of course, you'll be able to get all of that. But you're clearly, as you've just said, you're able to get so much more if you can do direct imaging and break that light up into its spectra and and see, you know, all those different absorption and emission features that show up from the light from the planet directly without having to do that transit filtering uh, business. Yeah. That we have to and, do. It, and it's I mean, it's really sociologically interesting so when we introduced this podcast we kind of made it sound like there were no exoplanets for a very long time and then there were exoplanets but of course (laughs) there were actually decades of people claiming to have found exoplanets and then them being debunked and claiming to have found exoplanets and then them being debunked because it was right on the edge of detectability so all of these signals that people were claiming uh were just just turned out to be statistical noise but they were so close and I, everybody, I think, myself included, predicts that for biosignatures, so this is what we're talking about now, really, looking at the light from these planets and looking for evidence of life, the same thing will happen with biosignatures. It's going to be like 20 years of people being like, there's one, and all the rest of the field being like, no, not really, and someone else being like, what about over here? And, and everyone else going like, nah, not convinced. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be, there's going to be a, a period of time, a churn, where it's not all quite as black and white. It's the old fable of the boy who cried exo-wolf, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> One of the things we haven't gotten to, but you you brought this up a couple of years ago at an American Astronomical Society meeting, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. You know, in comparison to our own solar system, where we do have the planets that exist in some sort of, you know, resonance, where, you know, I think Venus makes... Uh, makes eight orbits for every five orbits that Earth makes. And if you look at the outer planets, you know, you'll see Jupiter is about five astronomical units away, Saturn's about 10, Uranus is about 20, and Neptune's about 30. There is a little bit of this, you know, of these patterns that emerge, but it's not it's not as regular as you might expect. You discovered a system, I believe this was uh, using the Kepler data, you discovered an exoplanetary system where you discovered, I believe it was six or seven planets all in a row that had this incredibly regular resonance pattern in terms of the period of their orbit. And what you had told me privately, which I assume is still okay to air on the podcast, is that although you didn't have enough statistics to you know, announce them as discoveries, there were an additional two planet candidates beyond that that extended that pattern even further. Could you talk a little bit about that discovery? Yeah, so so I shouldn't take all the credit because it was actually discovered by citizen scientists, which is actually one of the things that makes the story really, really cool. So we put up these um, K2 planet candidates on the citizen science website. Um, so the platform is Zooniverse. So if you ever want to help people find amazing things in science, go to zooniverse.org and just help scientists look through their data. Um, so it was discovered by citizen scientists. So there's six planets in the system. Uh, five of them form this resonant chain that you were mentioning. 
Uh, and they're all they're all three to two resonances, which means that the inner planet goes around three times for every two times that the next planet goes around. That one goes around three times for every two times the next one goes around. That one goes around three times. You get it. Out and out and out. And uh, it's the longest chain of resonances like this that's been found. Um, and the reason scientifically it's really interesting is because, you know, as I was saying before, we have all these different theories about how planets form and how they migrate. And for instance, the hot Jupiters that you brought up earlier in the podcast, we don't think they formed where we found them. We find them in these very close orbits. Every They go around their star every two or three days, and that's super close. We don't think they actually form there. We think they form further out um, in the outer reaches of the solar system and then migrate in for some reason, and we're still working out what that reason is. Uh, so there's all these different theories for how planets migrate to where we see them today. Uh, and when we find these systems, which are in these compact systems of resonance like this, so this is one, and then TRAPPIST-1 actually is another system. They're not all first-order mean motion resonances like K2138, which is the system we're talking about, but they are all, all of the TRAPPIST planets are also locked in resonances, which is very cool. Uh, those resonance systems kind of indicate that the migration had to be smooth. It had to have, you know, some viscosity, so like a disk of material, and it had to be a smooth migration through a viscous disk of material, and then each planet would kind of get locked into a resonance, and then those two planets would march together slowly through the disk and grab a third planet in resonance. And once they were in resonance, the thing is, if you try to get out of resonance, you quickly become unstable, and the planets all just fly around, and that's it, you, you're, got, you're done. Um, so these planets have to stay in, in resonance for us to see them where we see them today. So that's why we think that this points towards this very smooth migration. Um, another type of migration that's been proposed is kind of much more bumper cars. You know, the, the planets are just kind of bouncing around and, you know, there's a, there's a theory that Jupiter and Saturn switched places in our solar system in a much more, you know, stochastic way than just a smooth migration. Um, so there's all these different theories and the, finding these resonance systems is such a good clue about which system, which migration mechanisms might be more common than others. Uh, so that's one of the really exciting things. So we did find a sixth planet in that system, which is not, uh, it's just a little bit off the resonant chain. Uh, it, if it was still on the resonant chain, the period would be 43 days and we find it at 42 days, which is just close enough to be compelling. Uh, and then I think what you're referring to is there's a gap. There's a gap between the fifth and sixth planets, which is big enough to fit two planets in it if the resonant chain continues. We're still hunting for those. We haven't found them yet. Uh, and our best prospect for finding them, which is the Spitzer Space Telescope, is actually turning off in three days. <laughs> yeah, um, it'll be off by the time you listen to this podcast. Yes. So bye-bye, Spitzer. <laughs> it was lovely knowing you. Um, so that's going to turn off. Uh, so that was our best prospect for finding some more. So that, that gap might remain unfilled for the near future. Right. And it sounds like also if those two planets happen to be just slightly out of the plane uh, where they don't transit, that that would have to be something for either direct imaging or radial velocity or a different methodology of search to find. Exactly. And there's a big radial velocity campaign uh, led by a European team uh, at the moment. And then there's a European mission called CHAOPS, which just launched a few months ago. Uh, and there's a big project that I'm part of on CHAOPS to characterize this system as well and see if we can find those those missing planets. Well, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for giving us a window into the universe beyond Earth and our solar system and into the world of exoplanets, including how they formed, how we're finding them, and what we're poised to learn as we head into the future. Dr. Jesse Christensen, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? 
Oh, uh, go outside and look up before Starlink destroys it all. <laughs> well, I won't disagree with that at all. <laughs> thank you for joining us and thank all of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, Jean Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Gran, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Chris Jakutas, Laird W.H., Ahmed Lee Comsi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Matt Rumel, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renicki, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hip, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, and Philip Radilovic. Thank you all for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.